Scripture text is taken from the book of Romans, the chapter 8, verse 1. Romans 8 and 1. And it reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For emphasis sake, let me read that again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, brother. Amen. Thank you so much, Leon, for reading that passage. That's a great passage, isn't it? One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. I'm just thrilled that you're here this morning and look out and see this good audience assembled. Know that there's uh, thousands online joining us this morning. Okay, that's preacher count, but uh, we're delighted at every one of you. Someone has, uh, much wiser than me, which gets about everybody, um, has said that sin, transgression, enters our lives when we have a choice and we make the wrong choice. And, and I, it just makes it especially meaningful this morning to know that you had a choice as to whether you were going to be in a place of worship this morning. You made the right choice, and I appreciate that, and uh, especially our college students, our university students. You didn't have mom and dad to wake you up this morning and to, you know, get you in the car. Well, if you did, that's creepy. But anyway, that's another. But uh, you're here anyway. You made the right choice, and and I'm delighted uh, because that's reflective of your spiritual maturity. Just always good to be with God's people, isn't it? What a joy. What a delight it is. I feel like the farmer up in Kentucky who, who entered his old a uh, mule in the Kentucky Tur- Derby, and, and he'd do that every year. Finally, somebody said, why do you do that? You know that he won't win. He, you know, he said, I, I know that, but I feel like the association will do him good. And uh, I, I, associating with, with God's people always does me good, and I know it does you as well. The following statistics are not intended to depress, but to illuminate and illustrate a point. Did you know that in the next one minute... That's 60 ticks of the clock. 120 souls will have passed into eternity. That's two each second. And then you began to magnify that. In one hour, some 7,425 souls will have passed into eternity to stand accountable to the God who made them. In one 24-hour period, that means 178,000 souls will have died and going to be judged. That's a total of some 65 million each and every year. Some of them will be young, and some of them will be old, and some will be in between. I don't mean to depress, again, I assure you, but it is a sobering thought to think one of them could be you or it could be me. I'm just saying this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a child of God, then you need to become one before this day is over. Because eternity could well depend on the decision that you make for God this very day. This is what I want you to have in mind when we talk about, I've entitled this lesson, Numbered Among the Redeemed. And here's what the word redeemed means, at least biblically defined. It means those who have obeyed the primary steps of the gospel in becoming a Christian and who are now faithfully living the Christian life. That's what we mean by redeemed. Those who have seen the error of their sins and have repented sincerely and genuinely of those sins. Who are willing to say to God, either in reality or at least in their hearts, God, I've, I've lived horribly. I've rebelled against your will and now 
I have a change of mind, and I'm going to demonstrate that by the way I live from this day forward. To courageously confess our belief, our conviction that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And then to be immersed in Christ, to have our sins washed away, just as the Bible dictates that we're to do from the day of Pentecost forward. So that's what I want you to have in mind when we use the word redeemed over and over again this morning, and we will. It means literally to buy back. That's the spiritual implication, at least, of the word redeemed as it's used in the pages of the New Testament. The Bible teaches us, in effect, on every page of the New Testament that Jesus Christ has, has in effect, bought us back from Satan's service. And Acts 20 and verse 28 says that he did that with his own precious blood. As we've just commemorated, the reason we're here this morning is because Jesus Christ died on the cross and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And also to commemorate the fact that after three days he walked out of that tomb and he has assured us over and over again, and especially in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if we follow Jesus faithfully, we too will be raised someday never to die again. That's the hope. That's the assurance that each of us have if we are numbered among the redeemed. And I can't think of any news that would be better than that. Jesus has bought us back. David once said in Psalm 107 and verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That just means if we are numbered among the redeemed, we ought not to be ashamed of that fact. And we're not going to brag about it, and we're not going to rub anybody's nose in it, but we're going to tell people what God has done in our lives. And we're going to do that with a joyful spirit. I wish you would, for the next few minutes, consider with me some characteristics that the Bible sets forth of those who have been numbered among the redeemed. That is, these are characteristics that ought to describe each and every one of us who have had our sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. In the first place, I suggest that if I'm numbered among the redeemed, my past sins will never be held against me again forever. And again, we're reminded of why the word gospel just means good news, because that is, in fact, good news. In this life, nor in eternity, will my sins ever again be laid to my charge. Now, the penalty for sin is clear. The Bible sets that forth in a way that we could not misunderstand. In Romans 6, 23, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. That means eternal separation from God. And we know that the reality of sin is a matter of biblical record. For just three chapters earlier, in Romans 3, verse 23, Paul said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That gets every one of us. Every one of us who have reached the age of accountability at some point in our lives have transgressed the will of God. We have sinned, and therefore we need to be redeemed, bought back from Satan's service, and reconciled to the Father's side. The atonement for sin has already been made. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The golden text of the Bible assures us in John chapter 3 and verse 16, the promise of forgiveness is immutable, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Hebrews 8 and verse 12 says, that's wonderful to contemplate as well. And then the text that we've chosen as our, our text this morning, Romans 8 verse 1. Again, what a great chapter and great verse this is. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. How much, Paul? None. Zero. That's nothing with all the edges shaved off. 
There is nothing that will condemn us, Paul says, who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. We think about that and we think about it soberly. And some of us think about it sadly. Because we know that every one of us has done things that, that we're ashamed of. There are things in our life, there are actions, there are decisions that we've made that were just wrong. And they violate the will of God. And we know that that's, that's the Greek word hamartia, that means to miss the mark, that we've sinned, we've transgressed God's will in our lives, and that makes us ashamed if we have any spiritual sensitivity about us at all. But, but those who are obedient to Christ, those who are numbered among the redeemed, don't have to worry about those things because they've been wiped from God's book of memory. You know, the reality is some live in fear and guilt because they don't believe that promise. I know that I talk to people on a regular basis who, as children of God, fail to appreciate the fact that God is willing to forgive them completely of every sin that they've repented of and that they've made restitution for. And the Bible tells us that over and over again, and, and those good people with their good intentions have read those verses, and yet they still struggle with them. The Apostle Paul even struggled with that concept. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 15, Paul wrote this, and this is, has to be biographical in nature. He said, this is a faithful and worthy saying full of, of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he added that little phrase, of whom I am chief. The great apostle Paul looked back on his life and said, you better believe there are things in my past that I'm ashamed of. I know what I've done. I know the way I've lived. And I'm here to tell you that if God will save Paul, he'll save anybody. We don't have to be ashamed of the sins that have been washed away. We don't have to lie awake at night thinking about our past and wondering how all of that is going to wash out in eternity. And if God really has torn that page out of the book of our lives, we don't have to worry about that for one moment. Because God's word tells us that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes I imposed this question. But Brother Randy, how can I know that God has forgiven me? In fact, I wish that I had kept count of how many times someone has asked me that question. And, and without exception, they're, they're people who are spiritually sensitive people, or else they wouldn't be asking the question, how do I know that God has forgiven me? And I know I've said this from this pulpit, but it bears repeating. I'll remind you that repentance takes place in the heart or the mind of man, while forgiveness takes place in the heart or the mind of God. So how do I know that God has forgiven me? We have to take his word for it. That's the only way we can know. And God has told us over and over again that if we've had our sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb, then we are forgiven. Listen to Dr. Luke for just a moment. Acts 3 verse 19. This is the very heart of the gospel message. Luke writes, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That is done away with. They're blotted. They're no longer seen. They're no longer visible. And he goes on to say that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter assured us that that same God-given promise on the day of Pentecost, when he stood up to preach on behalf of the other apostles, verse 37 of Acts 2 says that the people were pricked in their hearts. They were convicted by his message. He had convinced them that they were the ones responsible for killing the Messiah and nailing him to the tree. 
And they said, what should we do? And Peter's response was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for with a view toward the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Saul of Tarsus claimed that same promise and became the great apostle Paul. In Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16, Ananias came to him and he said, Saul, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me for just a moment. This won't take long because here we find a before and after picture of the Corinthian Christians. We know that Corinth was a hotbed of immorality. It was also a trade center of the then known world. And so there were all kinds of people that would pass through the gates of Corinth and and a lot of people chose to live there. And, and, And here's what the Bible says about those Corinthian Christians who had made the decision to follow Jesus Christ. And I'm beginning with verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, he goes on to say, for neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice verse 11. Appreciate the contrast. But such were some of you. I mean, the grammar there is intentional. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That is really a spiritual before and after picture. Before you did these things that would would make absolutely certain that you would not see God in eternity. But now you have been washed and justified by his name and by his blood. By the way, here's how they got that way. We don't have to question where the, the Corinthian congregation began because it's, it's, uh, it's recorded for us in Scripture. In Acts 18, in verse 8, the Bible says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. And here it is. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. They did what the apostles had told them that they needed to do in order to contact the blood of Jesus and then to be numbered among the redeemed. Here's the second thing. If I'm numbered among the redeemed, I can live in a saved condition. And that too is a huge part of the good news of the gospel. That's a wonderful thought to contemplate as well. It just means, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that for one thing, I can stop sinking blessed assurance with my fingers crossed. I can have confidence, not overconfidence, but godly spiritual confidence. To know that I am living in a saved condition. And we need to think about that more often, I think. A misunderstanding of that point keeps a lot of people from becoming and even remaining Christians. They say, I I just don't believe that I can live the perfect life that's required of a Christian. I remember hearing about one discouraged woman who said, since I can't live a perfect life, then my thinking is, why try? I'm going to be lost anyway. What a sad view of the Christian life. And how thoroughly incorrect. Turn for a moment to 1 John chapter 1. I want you to see this passage for yourself. We talk about it often, but I want us to read these verses because verses 8 and 10 of of 1 John chapter 1 tells us with with clarity the reality of our sinful natures. Here's verse 8. But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How's that for reality therapy? And then look at verse 10. It says, in essence, the same thing. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Why? Because God has affirmed that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Now, while we read those two verses and we appreciate the enormity and the sobriety of our sins, don't ever forget about verses 7 and 9. Verse 7 is reputed to have been Gus Nichols' favorite verse. If that is true, then I sure understand why. Because there's a great deal of comfort to be found there. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, that is, continues to cleanse us from all sin. What's the condition? Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This verse, especially verse 7, folks, I want us to appreciate is not talking about perfection, but it is talking about direction. It isn't talking about living a sinless life because none of us is up to that. But it is talking about walking in a direction, and that is in the same direction of Jesus Christ and and continuing our fellowship with him and knowing that when we do that, his blood continually, daily, washes our sins away. Let me illustrate it like this. If I'm headed down the road to Troy, and even if my car wobbles a little bit, if I stay on the right road, I will eventually get to where I plan to go. We can't live in a sinless in in sinless perfection. We understand that. But John tells us that we can live in a saved state. And that's important to know. The best illustration of that thought I've ever heard is like this. When we're driving down the road, this, by the way, isn't very difficult for us to imagine, considering what the weather was like yesterday, and the rain begins to spatter on the windshield, we turn on our windshield wipers. Some of you need to be taking notes on this. We turn on our windshield wipers and our headlights. The windshield wipers do not guarantee that the rain will not hit the windshield. We know better than that. But it does guarantee that when the rain hits the windshield, it will be immediately wiped away. I think that's the thought of 1 John 1 verse 7. Jesus Christ does not promise us sinless perfection when we decide to follow him, but it does mean that as we walk in fellowship with him, his blood will continually wash away, wipe away every single sin in our life. And then in the next chapter... Look over one more chapter, chapter 2, 1 John. Verse 1 beginning, my little children. Here's the patriot John writing this book to people that he loves so much. My little children, these things write I unto you that we sin not. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's so important. Advocate is a word there that ought to stand out. It just means an attorney. There is one to plead our case for us. And note the tense of the verb here. Not we had an advocate, but we have an advocate. And I think that's grammatically and spiritually important. He is our ever-present advocate in the very throne room of God. Here's a third thing that I can know if I'm numbered among the redeemed. And that is that I can face both life and death without anxiety and fear and worry. You know, some people can't face life. I checked the statistics just this past week in order to be able to update this lesson. Did you know that in the year 2018, that's the last year for which we have complete statistics, there were some 48,000 known suicides just in our country. And the number continues to escalate alarmingly each and every year. In 2018, there were 1.4 million attempts 
at suicide by citizens of this country. And the number of suicides has grown 25.4% since 1999. Every year in the United States, twice as many people kill themselves as kill each other. It's now the number one cause of death of those between 19 and 24. There's one suicide in the United States every 16.2 minutes. And I know that's not pleasant to think about. It's not pleasant to, to read about. But it is the reality that some people are afraid to live. They say anything would be better than what I'm experiencing in my life. And what a sad condition that is. But then there are others who find great difficulty in facing death. Did you know that the number one killer in our country is not cancer or heart disease? It's worry and stress. And those, of course, are contributing causes to a number of life-threatening maladies that people have each and every day. The word worry means literally to choke. And worry can strangle the the physical and the emotional and the spiritual life out of us, and it can leave an empty shell that simply cannot go on. But get this, God God intended for his people to live joy-filled and meaningful lives. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. John 10, verse 10. He's provided for us every necessity of life. We talked about this about three weeks ago in Matthew six thirty three in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these material things will be added into you. You won't have to worry about uh, what you wear and what you eat and having a roof over your head. He's provided for our spiritual imperfections. We've already seen that in 1 John 1 and verse 7. He's made possible our peace of mind. In Philippians 4 verse 7 beginning, Paul said, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God, and then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you've got a worry problem, Jesus Christ is the answer. If you lie awake at night stressed about what the next day may bring, Jesus Christ is still the answer. Paul said by inspiration that we need to understand that the peace that surpasses all understanding is guaranteed to be ours if we live the Christian life as he would have us to live it. And then in that great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he has assured us that death is not the end of this life, that the cemetery is not the final resting place of God's people. And isn't that wonderful to know? Over the last two years, we've had a lot of funerals at the University Church. Just this week, we'll have at least a couple of more that I know of. It seems like we're always gathering as God's people, aren't we? to say goodbye to someone that we love so very dearly. But when we read 1 Corinthians 15 and the other assurances in Scripture, and we know that the grave is not the resting place for God's people, that someday we'll be raised likewise never to die again. Psalm 23 is one of the most quoted passages of Scripture in all the Bible. You know the passage, the Lord is my shepherd, David wrote. And then he says, yea, though I walk... Through the valley and the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Please appreciate that the greatest fear of senior citizens in our country is not the fear of dying. It's the fear of dying alone. And that fear has been realized over and over again during this pandemic. When some of our elderly people have died even of the of the virus itself and isolated from their families who are not allowed to come in and see them. What a... 
tragic and terrible way to die, to die alone. And I suspect that might be true of every citizen in every country around our globe. Not just afraid to die, but I don't want to die by myself. And Psalm 23, 4 gives us some assurance. Verse 4, David would have us to know that we'll not be left in the valley of death. Please notice the preposition in that passage. He says, through in this passage. It didn't say, yea, though I will walk into the valley. It says, yea, though I walk through the valley and the shadow of death. And that assures us that our shepherd will not leave us in that valley, but that he will walk with us through the other side. Here's what that means in practical terms. When I turn loose of the hand of the one dearest on earth to me, and I take the hand of Jesus, he will usher me into the very throne room of God. That's what it means to be numbered among the redeemed. Also, being numbered among the redeemed means I've got something better to look forward to. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're almost through, but I really want you to see this passage with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, that just means to make us alive again, unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice all of our hope is hinged on the resurrection of Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Don't miss that church, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The inheritance that Peter is referring to and describing in this passage of the saved is reserved in heaven for you. That means it's a personal thing. That means you can't have my inheritance and I can't have yours. Material inheritance, something that maybe your parents have left you that is material in nature or that someone else has given you during the course of your life, those things can be lost or stolen. We all understand how that works, but not your spiritual inheritance. Folks, Peter tells us that will never be stolen. It is incorruptible. It is undefiled. There's a mansion reserved in heaven right now with your name on the mailbox if you're numbered among the redeemed. And you and I have a better country to look forward to if we're numbered among the redeemed. Everyone who's traveled outside the United States knows that even with all of its faults, we still live in the greatest nation on the planet. And I I know that we're not perfect, but I, I also know this. We come in way ahead of whoever comes in second place. You know, the most beautiful places, I guess, that I have ever seen, no, remove the word guest, the most beautiful places that I've ever seen on this earth are the island of Maui in the Hawaiian Islands, Colorado, the, the majestic Rockies of Colorado, and not surprisingly, the North Georgia mountains in the autumn of the year. Those are the most beautiful places that I've ever seen on this planet. And when I read scripture, I'm reminded every time I read that the redeemed are going to a place that makes any earthly place pale in comparison. Wash your ears out with this. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship, Paul writes, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, think about that. Think about the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming for us. And the very next verse, verse 21, tells us that we'll be given a new body that will be suitable for that eternal city that's not made with hands. Even if God's child lives in squalor on planet earth, he's going to be living in a mansion when he gets to that place. It's a perfect place. 
No wonder when Jesus was preparing his disciples for, in fact, his, his apostles for his imminent departure from this life. He knew that he was going to die on the cross, and he's trying to get them ready for that. And John 14, verse 1, opens with these words. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that good news? To know that the Lord is preparing right now a place for the redeemed. And that means you and me if we're children of God this morning. And then in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, Paul says, For we know if this earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. He's talking about the physical body there. We know from the context. Then he says, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And folks, that description alone is enough to make me want to go. And then Revelation 21.4 tells us that it's a place of eternal rest and joy. I try to read this passage every funeral that I preach because it's a tremendous amount of comfort and reassurance for those who have gone on who are faithful children of God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There'll be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. All of those things that you experienced in this world will not be in the world to come. And I hope you got the real impact of that. There will be no hospitals in that heavenly place. No funeral homes will be in operation in that holy city. You won't need any Kleenex when you get to heaven because there will be no more crying. Truly, as we sometimes sing, how beautiful heaven must be. There is absolutely no assurance that we'll ever be privileged to meet again in this capacity without the loss of one. Again, I don't intend to depress you with that statement, but it is a reality. In fact, in all likelihood, considering an audience of this size, we'll probably never ever again meet this way without some one of us having passed through the veil into eternity. And that's why it bears repeating. What you do here today, either in deciding for Christ or against him, could well determine where your soul will spend eternity. Some of you realize there's a decision that needs to be made in your life and in your heart, but you continue to put it off. And while deliberating on the most important decision that you will ever make and counting the cost are important, I beg you, don't put it off until it's too late. If you need to be numbered among the redeemed this morning, I, I pray that you'll make the right decision because the time will come when the window of opportunity is closed and you will no, have no more chances to make that decision. For the clock of life is wound but once and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more to lose one's soul is such a loss that no man can restore. The present only is our own. So live and love and toil with a will. Place no faith in tomorrow. For the hands may then be still. Won't you come while we stand, while we sing?